Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. On the show this week, Libya, as the end to the conflict approaches, all companies get ready to return to production. We can see some oil within weeks of the regime collapsing, but for resumption of full production back to that 1.6 million barrels of oil a day, it could take several years. Mining giant BHP Billiton reports record results. By almost any measure, these numbers are extremely impressive and record-setting. Cash flows were up about 80%. Underlying earnings were up over 60%. This is a very strong result that is, at the same time, on par with the very strong earnings seasons for the large multinational miners. And delays for deforestation permits by the Indian government could prove costly to SR Energy. 45% of all Indians currently have no access to electricity at all. There's going to have to be a huge expansion in the country's generating capacity. So one way or another, India's going to have to build a lot more power stations. And SR Energy's argument is that if that's going to happen, then the regulations governing the building of new power stations on greenfield sites are going to have to be relaxed. Let's start the show in Libya and the impact the collapse of Gaddafi's regime will have on the country's oil production, which has dropped from 1.6 million barrels a day to about 50,000 barrels a day since the start of the civil war. And joining me in the studio is the FT's commodities editor, Javier Blas. Javier, what's happened to the oil price since we got the news from Tripoli that it looked like Gaddafi's regime is about to crumble? Prices have started to drop, obviously, not only because of Libya, but also because of the economic situation. But surprisingly, the drop has been relatively small. Brand prices, that is the global benchmark for crude oil, on Monday, that's when we have news of, of Tripoli about to collapse in the hands of the rebels, it dropped to $105. It was about $3 down on the day, but it still managed to, to recover most of the losses and is now trading around $108 per barrel. So surprisingly, a very, very small small drop on oil prices. So does that mean the market doesn't expect production to resume anytime soon? That's exactly the, the, the market perception. Some oil from Libya will return to the market and we can see some oil within weeks of the regime collapsing. But for resumption of full production back to that 1.6 million barrels of oil a day that you were mentioning at the beginning, it could take months. And some executives and consultants are saying that it could take years, several years. So Libya faced a very long battle to restore oil production. And what are most of the companies saying? I mean, some of them have already reached out to the rebels. Are they back in there? The, the companies have been talking to the rebels for the last several months since uh, we have a, a, some kind of committee, the National Committee in Benghazi. So they have been reaching to them. They have been private visits by senior oil executives from the companies that are heavily involved in, in Libya. We are talking about 
any of Italy, Repsol, YPF of Spain, Total of France, OMB of Austria. Those companies have a keen interest in what is happening in Libya, and they have had staff on the ground visiting Benghazi. But so far, none of the companies have started to send their production staff back to the country, and that's going to take a long time. I've been speaking with some advisors to the companies, and what they said is that the most likely scenario, once Tripoli is captured and the rest of the country is safe and secure and they could take days or, or weeks to that to happen is that companies will try to send planes to overfly their compounds, their assets, check from the air what is the damage, whether the runways in the desert are still operational, and then they will send teams to evaluate the situation with heavy security. As a consultant was saying, we will send probably two engineers and a battalion of bodyguards with them just to make sure that they are okay on the ground, check everything is okay. There are reports of looting on the compounds. Apparently, all the cars and trucks that the companies left behind have disappeared. So it's going to take some time. But even so, the most upbeat companies say that since security is in place, they could be producing in about four weeks. But there is a big caveat. All the companies are saying it will depend if the oil export terminals in Libya are operational or not. That is a huge question mark. And just finally, is, is there a lesson to be drawn from what happened in Iraq after the facilities? Yes, it is a big one because the collapse of Baghdad triggered a massive amount of headlines of a new wave of oil coming from Iraq basically tomorrow. It took five years to reach the pre-war levels of 2003. So Iraq only reached the level that it has during the invasion in 2008. If we extrapolate the situation, and obviously the countries are very different, we don't know if the political chaos and security problems that mar the Iraqi transition will replicate in, in Libya. But if we had to happen we will expect only the restoration of full production maybe in 2016. So there are many examples, not only Iraq, but Iran in 79 after the Islamic Revolution, Venezuela in 2002 after an oil strike, even Kuwait in 1990-1991 after the First Gulf War. Every time, each of those times, the industry has said we will be restoring oil production in a few weeks. It has taken months, if not years. So I think that we are not going to see Libya back, fully back to the market until probably the earliest next year, mid next year. Seems like the oil price is telling us the right thing. Thank you. Let's move to mining giant BHP Billiton and record results published this morning, which show underlying earnings up 51% to $37.1 billion for the full year. Joining me now is FT Mining correspondent William McNamara. William, just wonder if you could first of all just talk us through the numbers because they're pretty impressive. By almost any measure, these numbers are extremely impressive and record-setting. Cash flows were up about 80%. Underlying earnings were up over 60%. This is a very strong result that is at the same time on par with the very strong earnings seasons for the large multinational miners. Which particular commodities have driven these results? Iron ore. These are very complex global companies, but their results this year simplify pretty nicely. Iron ore is booming. The divisional profits from BHP's iron ore operations more than doubled. That carried the entire group's rise in earnings. Iron ore simplifies to a basic idea, which is that Chinese steel mills are producing a huge amount of steel and paying over double the prices they were last year for that steel, most of the iron ore comes from Australia, and most of that iron ore is owned by BHP and Rio Tinto. 
So basically, BHP and its rival Rio are making a fortune from selling iron ore to China. And despite the fact that it produces over 10 different commodities, this is what we're seeing in BHP's results today. And Marius Klopp is the chief executive. What's his outlook for the rest of the years? Is he being bullish on commodity prices? BHP is characteristically cautious about just about everything when it comes to forecasts. It's sort of on the one hand, but on the other. The economic forecast, uh, the sort of forecast for global growth was like that again. You know, developed world will lag, developing world will not. On the the outlook for pure commodities prices, they were uncharacteristically bullish, saying um, in the short and medium term, we expect robust demand for commodities. That shows a kind of willingness to confront the reality that we've seen over the past 12 or 24 months, which is commodities prices only going one way, which is up, creating very high profit margins for the major mining companies. Finally, did Klopper say anything at all about what he intends to do with all his cash? I mean, obviously, they bought Petrohawk Energy, the shale gas producer in the U.S. a few weeks ago. Um, and any signals coming out from where they're going next? They raised their dividend, which was basically to be expected. They raised it a bit higher than expected by 22%. This is a progressive dividend. So its new base, which is 22% higher, will be a base from which it will continue to rise. So that's good in some term. It's bought back $10 billion worth of shares over the past year. And the company is so rolling in cash that a lot of people thought they would extend that or announce an entirely new $10 billion program this year. When you have $30.1 billion in annual cash flows, this all seems sort of like funny numbers. They did not announce an extension of the of the buyback program. And the general signal was that they have a very aggressive growth program over the next five years. They attach BHP attaches a pretty eye-popping number to that, which is $80 billion. It plans to build new mines, expand existing mines, and the total bill from 2010 to 2015 will be $80 billion, which is well more than the GDPs of a lot of countries that it operates in. It highlighted the rising costs of employing people and building these mines. So it's basically saying, yes, we're making a lot of cash. Yes, the times are good. We're giving back as much of that as we can, and we're recycling most of the rest of it into building new copper and iron ore and diamond mines. And presume they also, as you just touched on that, that they need a bit of cash as a sort of cushion for the rising costs. And just one last thing, what's the share price done this morning? Uh, it has not responded. This is sort of a great paradox in the mining industry, which is that it has sold off amid the general derating in equities this year. It has sold off worse than the other equities. But this comes despite a record-setting earnings season. BHP is the last of the big four to report. Anglo, Rio, Extrata have all already reported. And in all of these cases, they usually come out with at least some record-breaking po- profits metric. And prices either fall or go along stagnantly because what the market's responding to is these macro fears about you know, Chinese growth could slow down, and or et cetera, et cetera, or the developed world isn't recovering fast enough. And it's almost like they're completely ignoring the, the numbers in black and white in these earnings, which is that these companies are making more money than any other companies in any other sector. <laughs> That's one feel, should feel some sympathy for Mr. Kloppers. Thanks very much. <laughs> and to our final topic for today, SR Energy and its problems with the Indian government over deforestation permits. Joining me in the studio is FT Energy correspondent David Blair. Now, David, what's the situation with these deforestation permits? Well, Isai Energy announced their first half results the other day. They announced an 80% increase in pre-tax profits, whereupon their shares fell by 3%. And that was actually a perfectly rational response because in among the results, 
was the news that SR Energy will not get permission to begin mining coal in time for the commissioning of a new power station. What they're doing is they're hugely expanding their generating capacity in India. But as an integrated energy company, they want to be able to mine and produce the coal that these plants will consume. To do that, they need to chop down a a large area of pristine rainforest. And to do that, they need government permission. And they haven't got it. Is anything specific holding up the permission? Well, the Indian Environment Ministry has objected. And an interdepartmental committee comprised of Indian cabinet ministers has been formed to decide the issue. That committee has met four times, but no solution is yet in sight. And even if, supposing they were to give SR Energy everything it wanted today, that still would be too late to provide coal for the first power station, where the first unit is due to begin operating next month. Now, if they get permission to conduct the deforestation, there would then be a time lag of between 15 and 18 months before the first coal could be produced. And the first unit of this power station goes online next month. The whole power station will be finished next March, along with the second power station. So it's now pretty clear that the mines will not be ready for the commissioning of those two big new power stations. India needs, obviously, a lot of power. I mean, should that be in favour of SR getting these permits? Yeah, the essential reality is that even today... India has a power deficit equivalent to about 10% of the country's peak demand. Now, when you consider that India's economy is growing by about 8 or 9% a year, and that 45% of all Indians currently have no access to electricity at all, there's going to have to be a huge expansion in the country's generating capacity. So one way or another, India is going to have to build a lot more power stations. And SR Energy's argument is that if that's going to happen, then the regulations governing the building of new power stations on greenfield sites are going to have to be relaxed. And it makes sense for India to fuel those power stations using its domestic coal reserves. That's by far the cheapest option. And when you consider just how great the levels of poverty are in India, the affordability of electricity is more of an important consideration in India than it is over here, for example. The alternative for SR in terms of the coal, do they import that in the interim? They're very clear that they are going to have to buy coal on the open market for their power station when it's first uh, commissioned, and some of that will be imported coal. And it's very clear that that will be a more expensive option than providing it from their own mines. However, they do point out that they do have an option of passing on some of those additional costs to their customers, so they won't bear all of the financial burden imposed on them through that, but they will bear some of it. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to guests Javier Blas, William McNamara and David Blair. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.